Are you a servant? If you want to serve Jesus, you must serve others. Here's Pastor John Randall. The greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. But here's the question for us before we move on, because all of us wrestle with this. All of us are wondering about our own personal greatness. But look at this. Think about this. How are you presently serving other people? Right now, in your life, how are you serving Jesus by serving others? Who do you serve? Another question, how do you serve and with what attitude do you serve? What is the motive for serving? We're grateful for this next half hour together with you and head over to Luke 22, if you would, as we set the stage. The world measures success far different than the Lord, that's for sure. If you wanna be great in God's sight, we need to learn to be a servant. And here Jesus describes for us what it means to be a servant. We'll also learn a thing or two about the trials we go through and who will walk through them with us. Today on A Daily Walk, John Randall will be covering Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. Luke chapter 22, I wanna draw your attention to verse 24. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves. Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom of God and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We have now come to... Really, the last point of Jesus' ministry, he's some 48 hours less, actually, less than 48 hours away from his death. He's about to be taken outside of the city, and he will be beaten beyond recognition of a man, have his beard plucked out, have his back scourged, taken outside the city, and nailed to the cross of Calvary. The Bible tells us in John's Gospel the 13th chapter, that before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew all of these things were about to take place. He was anticipating it. And in the process, he was seeking to prepare his disciples for what was about to transpire. Now, we know that Jesus is still here in the upper room with his disciples. At this point, the Passover has already been celebrated and partaken of. Jesus has already gotten up from the table, girded himself with a towel, and washed all of the disciples' feet. We also know at this point that Jesus being at the table, that he informed his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And they all began to look at one another and even to themselves saying to the Lord, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? It's interesting that no one knew that it was Judas. How come nobody knew it was Judas? We always have the tendency to think that Judas wore a black robe and everybody else wore a white one. And you could point him out in a, 
in a lineup. It'd be easy. Oh, that's the guy. Look at him. He's all greasy and, you know, that's him. <laughs> but they couldn't tell, which is revealing because it really shows us how good Judas was at being fake, how phony he was. He had everybody fooled except Jesus. Jesus isn't fooled. Jesus knew exactly what Judas was up to. And Jesus even said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. And he dismissed Judas from the upper room and he went out into the darkness of the night to betray Jesus. At that moment, after Judas had been dismissed, the gospels collectively bring this together. Jesus then instituted for the very first time communion. He took those common elements that were there at every meal. And he said, this bread that's broken for you. It's a reminder of my body. And every time you take of it, I want you to remember me, what I've done, what I'm going to do for you. Don't ever forget it. And then he took the cup and he said, drink of it. This represents the shed blood and entering into a new covenant. I want you to partake of this. Never forget. So he institutes communion for the first time. The Bible says that they, they sang a hymn at this moment as well. Now the Bible tells us that Jesus, after that, he began to be sorrowful, in deep anguish, in pain, because he knew, as I said, what was about to take place. Now, you would assume, wouldn't you, that the disciples, walking with Jesus for three and a half years, his closest friends, seeing what he was going through, talking about being betrayed, talking about being put to death, that they would have been sensitive to his situation. But we find that rather than be mindful of what Jesus was going through and about to endure, that they got right back to a discussion that they had talked about earlier in Luke chapter nine. They had the same discussion and it wasn't just a discussion, it was a debate. That's what the word dispute means. They were arguing. They're arguing at the last supper after Jesus has given them communion, talking about all of these spiritual truths. I mean, he has just poured into them some of the the richest, deepest truths that they've known up to this point. And as marvelous as all of that is, they can think of nothing else but greatness. They don't get it. They still don't understand what the point is, what the mission is, what's about to happen. They don't get it. And so they're debating amongst themselves, who's going to be the greatest? And, and the, the, the interesting thing to me is that here it says in 24 that when they are disputing among themselves as to which of them, like they don't even take into consideration Jesus is there. I mean, aside from you, Jesus, you know, obviously we all know you're the greatest, but what about us? I mean, they have no idea, no concept, and we really can't be too hard on the disciples. Because the truth of the matter is sometimes God is wanting to impart some deep spiritual truth into our own hearts and we're too concerned about our own thing to receive it. Or we lose sight of what the point is and what the purpose is. That's where they were at. Oblivious to these, these things that Jesus was saying. And I would think Jesus would just be so impatient. That's it. No more. This has been three and a half years. We've already had this discussion. I already rebuked you guys and you still don't get it. I'm getting myself some new disciples. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. You know what I love about Jesus? (laughs) He's so patient. He's so patient with these guys. He's so patient with us. How many of you don't raise your hand because I know all of us have experienced this, have had to learn the same lesson over and over and over again. I thought we went over this back in chapter nine. We did, but you didn't get it. So here in chapter (laughs) 22, we're gonna go over it once again. And how the Lord just 
is so patient in teaching us and long-suffering and gracious and wanting us to learn and, and bringing us along. That's what he was doing with these men. And so he graciously responds to them and draws a comparison for them when he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and they who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you on the contrary. The disciples were well aware of what it was to have lordship exercised over them. The Romans ruled with an iron fist. They occupied their land and demanded respect. In fact, if a Roman soldier came up to you walking down the road, he could touch you on the shoulder and say, carry my bags a mile. And you would, whatever you were doing, you would stop and you would carry his bags a mile immediately. No reaction, no response. You do it or you die. That's why Jesus, I believe, said to his disciples, when they compel you to go one mile, go two. Won't that be a surprise? You know what it's like to have lordship exercised over you. You know what it's like to be under an oppressive rule and, and have leaders over you like that. But, but it's not to be that way for you. It's not that way in my kingdom. That's not where greatness is. That may be greatness in the world, lording over people and exercising authority over people and having people under your thumb and building great buildings that have your name plastered on it, but not in my kingdom, Jesus would say. It's not like that. It's not to be that way. On the contrary, Jesus makes a distinction. There is something different about his disciples and those who are in the world. There's something different about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And one of the differences is the fact that his people are servants because they follow his example. Jesus said to them, who's greater? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves around the table? The obvious answer is the one that sits at the table is the greater because the servants are serving him. But Jesus said, I am, and of course he is the greatest, he was serving he had taught them this. He had modeled this. He had just finished washing their feet, giving them an example of what it is to be a servant. The Bible tells us in the book of Philippians to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he was in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess to the glory of God the Father. What mind? the mind of Christ. What was the mindset of Christ? It was the mind of a servant, the mind of a bondservant. Do you know what a bondservant is? In the Old Testament, if a slave served under his master for a period of time and had the opportunity to go free, he could decline his right to go free and desire and request to be a slave for life. It was called a bondservant, a bond slave. And he would be taken by his master and an awl would be driven through his ear symbolically showing from that moment on, he's a bondservant, he's a slave by choice. His motivation is love for his master. Jesus took this lowest form of a servant, obedient completely to the will of the Father, giving us an example that we are to serve. And a servant, a servant isn't overly concerned about whether people recognize him. He's just doing the job 
that his master's asked him to do. He's not too concerned about getting a plaque to put on his wall, greatest servant of the year. He's not worried about that. He's not worried about the applause of people. He's worried about or concerned about, rather, pleasing the Father. That should be our heart. If he's a servant, we ought to be servants. The greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. But here's the question for us before we move on, because all of us wrestle with this. All of us are wondering about our own personal greatness. But look at this. Think about this. How are you presently serving other people? Right now, in your life, How are you serving Jesus by serving others? Who do you serve? Another question. How do you serve and with what attitude do you serve? What is the motive for serving? Every day when I would go into my former office, which was a janitorial closet, as you would walk through the door, there was the placard, there was the sign You'll know you're a servant by the way you act when you're treated like one. Right on. And go out the door into the new day. There are times, aren't there, when you are treated like a servant, and then you find out, and then I discover, am I really a servant? Well, that all depends on whether I'm going to be appreciated or not. Whether I'm going to get a gift card at the end of the, you know what? No, that's not the point, right? How do you serve? The greatest motivation for service should be love. Just love for Jesus. That is why. His love for me and my service to him is response. The Bible says to present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. It's reasonable. It's not unreasonable to be a servant of the Lord. It's reasonable when you consider that he served us and came and died in our place. And so Jesus, once again, tells his disciples that they need to learn to serve. And then in verse 28, Jesus makes a statement here, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This phrase stood out to me as I read it. I don't know if you've read this before, but, but mark it. Jesus said, you've continued with me in my trials. Jesus went through trials? Absolutely. You may be sitting here presently saying, oh, trials, I know a little bit about that. In fact, I'm in one right now. As a Christian, it is common to go through trials. Every single believer, every child of God is going to go through a trial. Even if you're not a believer, you will experience trials in a fallen world. Every single one of us, as a Christian, you're either going into a trial, you're in the midst of one, you're about to come out of one, ready to go back into another one. This is just how the Christian life is. But here's the great news for you as a believer in Jesus today. You don't go through it alone. You have to understand that. God said, I will never, never means never leave you or forsake you. You might be in the midst of a trial right now, and you say, man, the fires of this trial are warm. It's hot. But Jesus is there, just like he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the fire, he's there, and you're not going to get scorched. You might say, man, I am in deep waters today. It is rising. I've got a couple nostrils. I'm I'm hanging in there, but I feel like I'm going to, you're not going to drown. He said, I will be with you when you pass through the waters, even through the valley of the shadow of death. The Lord said, I'm going to be with you. 
You're not going to go through it alone. And some of you today, you are no doubt in the midst of some pretty intense things. And you're wondering, what's going to happen? Here's what you can know for sure. All of these things that are happening right now in your trials, in my trials, God is using them and working them out for good in my life and for his glory. That's what I know for sure. That's what the Bible says. If you're in a trial today, I want to remind you that God is there. Jesus said to his disciples, you have been with me in my trials. There's something unique, isn't there, about going through a trial with somebody else. You ever suffered through a trial with somebody else? Maybe your spouse, maybe a brother, a sister, a grandparent, whatever, but a family member. You, you suffered through trials together. You're in this together. What happens when you, when you are making your way through that trial together? Oftentimes, one of two things can happen. Either it drives you apart or it brings you closer together like never before. And there was this unity, there was this mutual understanding. We've been through this, we've gone through this together, and, and the tie that we have and the bond that we have is that much stronger because God brought us through. The disciples were having the opportunity to know Jesus in a way that, that was so personal and so intimate. They, they were going through his trials with him. The apostle Paul took note of this, I believe, again, when he wrote to the Philippians and he said, I want to know Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings, and I want to be conformed to his death. What a request, what a desire. It would seem that Paul was desiring to know Jesus in the deepest, most intimate way possible, and if that meant through his trials, then so be it. The disciples had this opportunity, and Jesus said, because you've experienced this with me, listen, you've gone through trials in this life, but I'm gonna bestow a kingdom on you. It's not gonna be a kingdom like this world. There's, there's a brighter day coming. There's a change that will take place later on. Listen, if we suffer with him, the Bible says we're also gonna reign with him. That we are joint heirs with Christ, children of God, if indeed we suffer with him. There's a kingdom that will be bestowed upon us. Now in verse 31, between verse 30 and verse 31, there are a number of things that happen. Jesus and his disciples now leave the upper room. And they travel from the upper room to the garden of Gethsemane. But a number of things take place. And in John's gospel, the 13th chapter to the 18th chapter, I believe it is, John 13, all the way to John, I believe it's 18, let me just, yes, chapter 18, 13 to 18, fills in the details of what happens from the upper room to the garden of Gethsemane. And you can read through that. You can see the, the words of Jesus written down and recorded. You can see the prayers of Jesus written down and recorded by John. I encourage you to do that on your own time, to fill in the gaps between verse 30 and 31 that Luke omits. However, one of the things that Jesus predicted as they were making their way to the garden of Gethsemane is that all of the disciples would stumble. All of them would forsake him on that particular night. That's what he told them. All of you will be made to stumble for me this night and, and because I will strike the shepherd. The, the shepherd was gonna be struck and the sheep were gonna scatter. That's what the Bible said. But then Jesus said, after I've been raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. You all are gonna, you're gonna desert me tonight. This is what's gonna happen. He's telling them this and they're all in shock by this. But Peter, Peter does something. Peter speaks up. And the first thing he does, he compares himself to the other disciples. Listen, Lord, I know you're, you're saying we're all going to deny you, and I can see how these guys would, but listen, I won't. <laughs> I will never do that. I, 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 I would never do that, Lord. I won't. 
Even if all he said deny you, I will never. Famous last words. Contradicting the words of Jesus. Never a good idea. Jesus said all. He didn't say all. Oh, wait, except you, Peter. You're over here with me. No, everybody is going to deny me. Peter said, it's not going to happen, Lord. I'll never do it. Now, notice this. Jesus says to Peter in verse 31 now of Luke's gospel, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny three times that you knew me. Jesus says something to Peter that I'm sure shocked him, not only that he was going to deny him, but he said this, he said that Satan has asked for you by name. He has asked for you and he desires one thing, to sift you like wheat. He wants to destroy your life. I don't know if you've ever seen wheat sifted. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a delicate procedure. You rip it apart and you let the chaff blow in the wind. And Jesus said to Peter, that's exactly what Satan wants to do to you. He's asked for you by name. He's requesting to destroy your life. Satan has his intentions. He has his desires. He comes to rob, kill, and ultimately destroy. That has been his intention from the very beginning. That's his one desire. He has his sight set on your family, your marriage. He'd love to just destroy it. On your children, he'd love to just rob them and lead them astray, watch them waste their lives. On the church, would love to see it undermined, divided, fall apart. That's his desire. But he can do nothing except that what God allows. Offering hope and encouragement for your daily walk, that is Pastor John Randall. And this is A Daily Walk. We're going through the Bible right now. You can order a CD copy of this message by calling 877-242-0828. You can also listen to our recent programs on our website at adailywalk.org. We also offer John's teachings by podcast, and we have an app, too. To get our app, do a search for Calvary South OC. I should also mention John is on Twitter and Instagram. You can start following him on Twitter at PJRandall7 and on Instagram at John P. Randall. With all that's been going on in the Middle East and Israel, many are inquiring about end times Bible prophecy. And we want to get a good book into your hands on this subject from our friend Barry Stagner. It's The Time of the Signs, a chronology of Earth's final events. When the disciples asked Jesus how to anticipate his return, he gave them an incredible answer that we stand to benefit from. They asked him about the signs of his coming and the end times. What should they expect to take place? In The Time of the Signs, Barry Stagner explores the events that will precede Jesus' return. We'll send it to you for the special price of $12. Call us at 877-242-0828 or go online to adailywalk.org. Thank you for your prayerful and financial support of A Daily Walk. It really is having an impact. With your help, we're able to reach thousands with the truth and love of Christ at a time they really need to hear it. 
If you'd like to donate to the ministry, please go to adailywalk.org or call us at 877-242-0828. And you know, we are very grateful to the Lord when we hear back from our listeners. Write to Pastor John today by email at adailywalk at gmail.com. He loves to read listener letters and emails. Let him know what's going on in your life and how we can pray for you at adailywalk at gmail.com. Maybe you're one of our new listeners. Let us know what you think of A Daily Walk when you write to us at adailywalk at gmail.com. We have a little bit of time left, so let's look ahead to our next study in Luke. Jesus exhorts his disciples that one of the ways to overcome temptation is to be a person of prayer. Pray that you would not enter into temptation. Jesus, you remember the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gave them a model for prayer. And part of that model was lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you want to overcome temptation when you face it, pray, pray before. When it comes, in whatever form that it comes, and what may be a temptation for you may not be a temptation for me. What may be a temptation for me may not be a temptation for you. But what I do know is we need to be people of prayer to overcome temptation. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God will with the temptation uh, make a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. There is always an escape from temptation. There is always an exit. You can't stop temptation from coming, but you can do something about it when it does come. And one of the things you can do is pray. Overcoming temptation through prayer. That's coming up next time on A Daily Walk as we continue through the Bible with John Randall. This is a presentation of Calvary South O.C., 